0: to help us expel some of this and help us try to figure out how it is that God speaks to us. And so Scrappy-Doo-Scooby-Doo relationship is not exactly the relationship I would say that Ed and I have. Ed, I would say that we have more relationship of a master and a student, okay? And so there's just a a certain – and this is listen, this is how I feel when I sit with Ed. I feel small and tiny, and I feel like Ed could just pick me up with his hands like this, you know? And there's a lot that Ed has taught me through, you know, scripture and just leadership and all these things. But really, there are some things that he's taught me that probably he doesn't even know about. And one example was his secret to living so vivaciously. And what I mean by that is there was this one time where we were sitting uh, in the office during staff and had a break in the staff meeting. We're having lunch. And Ed had this put out a salad. And I said, oh, that's that's cool. You know, I mean, you know, you still know how to eat well and all these things. And it was a pretty good salad. And it was just doused in this, like, really dark sauce. And he ate the salad like I eat a steak, you know. He didn't look up. He was involved. He almost inhaled it, right? And I said, Jeez, Ed, that looks pretty good. He goes, I, I was asking, what was in it? He goes, I don't know. Diane made me this salad. And I don't know what, but it's like this balsamic vinaigrette that is just to die for. And he's just eating it up. And so I said, geez, you, would you mind if I asked Diane, like, what's the, you know, for her recipe? She said, sure. So next time I saw Diane, I said, hey, Diane, I heard about that salad you made, man, and that sauce you made. I said, is that the key to what keeps Ed going? She goes, yeah, probably. So I asked her, what was the secret ingredient? And she looked around, made sure nobody was looking, and she leaned in and she said, well, it's not really balsamic vinaigrette. It's uh, WD-40, WD-40. And I said, aha, got it. So from that point on, I know some of the secrets that keeps Ed going, right? And so as we proceed now into the Faith at Work series, we can begin to see what James is talking about. And so if we could just take a quick look back and review some of the points that Pastor Ed made two weeks ago. As we find James, he's uh, being very forthcoming in this letter to the scattered tribes, right, that have been out. And as Ed explained, we need to be rooted in faith. We need to have an informed and functional faith, a faith that is informed by the word of God, and one that works because we choose to put it to work. We also see that James is quite insightful, and actually he thinks in an upside-down way. And so for Ed, what he figured out that to being was that we don't need to be CEOs of our lives, but more CPOs, chief perspective officers, right? And by that, if we're rooted in our faith and we have the right perspective, then we can consider it joyful, When we encounter adversity, we can consider it these things that are beautiful because God created, God provides, God is sovereign. And so in order for our faith to work, our faiths must work. Our faiths are what it is that drives us. And as we see today, we see the second part of chapter one. We'll see how it plays into this passage. So if you would right now, would stand with me as we read the word of God. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word placed in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask with your spirit with us now, may your message be clear, succinct, precise, and powerful. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, Give us what we are not. Make us. For we ask for all things in Christ's name. Amen. You may take a seat. So now we find ourselves at a break in chapter 1. As James goes from talking about going from an informed faith to an informed doing of faith, he gives us some distinct ways that we can work our faith, or essentially, living the life. James instructs us to be doers of God's word and not just hearers. Sounds simple. But if you look at it the way I look at it, I think that we find ourselves doing parts of these statements individually and find it rare to do it together. To be doers of God's words and not simply hearers. Two parts for me. The first part is that I think we're all doers. We all do things. We're all active. We all actively participate, which is easy to do. And I think at times we're all hearers of God's word. I think as a matter of fact, I think sometimes we take it overboard. We take God's word and hear it and we use it as bulletin board material. If anybody knows anything about sports, right, if you're ever preparing for a game and you hear somebody from the other team talk, you know, trash or whatever, they take that material and post it on the bulletin board in the locker room. It fuels the fire. I think sometimes we take God's word and just use it as that, something to just fuel our fire to be pretty, and we'd have no intentions of doing God's word. So doers is natural for us. It's in our nature. Yeah, we know our nature is sinful. So when we do without God's word, we find that our doing is not in accordance to what he wants. So to be not just hearers but doers, we find, is the tough part, which is why we're here today. So living the life is what it means to live the life designed by God to be doers of his word. So we look at the base of what I think this message is, verses 22 through 25. If you look with me, it says that, Uh, Not to just listen to the word, but to do as it says. You see, if you give attention to the word, attention brings retention. If you're actively participating, pursuing God's word, doing what it says, then you can stay integral to his mission, to his overall story. Because you know what? Hearing only leads us to deception. To go from goodwill to God's will takes instruction from his word. You see, the word of God cannot be fully grasped until it's fully put into practice. The doing is the reflection of what anyone believes. I mean, people know who we are by what we do. St. Francis of Sissi is the one that is most famously known for saying the quote, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. The gospel and the message we share is through our own testimonies and actions that we do. Therefore, we need to have an informed doing. It's hearing with the right kind of ears, doing with the right kind of perspective. Informed doing is doing not for us, but for those who don't know the gospel. Not for now, but for eternity. Not for here, but for the kingdom. And so, with an informed doing, for me, one way to look at it is a concept of belonging and believing. A lot of us here are believers, and sometimes we have a tough time understanding and grasping and forming an idea of what it is to believe. And so, how do we help shape that, Well, we do that by doing. And by doing, we then belong and can understand through our actions what it means to be part of God's story. Let me give you a few examples. See, when we can participate in God's story and act on our faith through his word, we can begin to see the work in our lives and see it work in the grand scheme of how God's narrating his story. One example is what we see right now. What's got the world's attention right now? The World Cup right? And now U.S. has fallen by the wayside, but if you watch any of the games in the telecasts, what do you see? You see entire countries coming together to enjoy, to watch, to participate. They themselves aren't playing the game, but through the actions of these players. These players play for the pure excitement and the pure joy. They're doing what they, they love to do, right? And so All of a sudden, these fans, who have maybe no connection to these players, but millions and millions of fans, feel like they belong to a larger community through the actions of these players. They're united by a vision. Let me read you another story. came across this website of this one uh, young uh, girl in Ohio. Let me read you a clip from her website. It says, Hi, my name is Harley. I live in Northeast Ohio. I love animals. Right there, right? That's got most of you, right? Yay, animals, pets, right? I always try to look for ways to help them, especially the abused, neglected, or unwanted ones. In March 2009, I started Blankets for Beasties. Blankets for Beasties, F-U-R, right? Blankets for Beasties. Blankets for Beasties collects new and clean used blankets, quilts, sheets, towels, dog, and cat toys, all sorts of animal supplies and food from businesses and generous people like you. Everything is taken to an area animal shelters to help make animals' shelters stay as comfortable as possible while they wait to be adopted into their homes. You see, with her mom's help, Harley here has already donated more than 3,000 items. To do more, she decided to turn her charity, Blankets for Beasties, into a tax-exempt nonprofit. But see, that takes money a 13-year-old doesn't have. So she turned to Ari Nessel, who made a fortune in Dallas real estate, See, Harley became one of the recipients of Nestle's unusual quest. You see, Nestle is on a quest to give away $1,000 a day, every day, to someone trying to make a difference. You see, the 40-year-old Nestle created a foundation he calls the Pollination Project. So instead of writing one big check to an established charity, he chooses someone just getting started to receive his daily $1,000 donation. You see, one of the challenges with the way philanthropy working for Nestle is that currently there's a disconnect between the givers, the doers, and those benefiting from the work. So he sent out his first check of January 1st last year. To this date, he's given more than 447 grants, totaling, of course, more than $447,000 in over 50 states and 50 countries. Not only is he given to Harley, but he's given to Raghu Makwan in India, an individual paralyzed by polio who got $1,000 to deliver meals to people needier than he, paralyzed by polio. Nestle says, here is a man who has no legs, who you think everyone else should be taking care of, and who would go every day, twice a day, in monsoons, 105 degree heat, bring people food. Nestle wants to support that. Another woman in California, Celia Zenz, wants to give away her land. She's 88 years old. She wants to give away her land to support community agriculture to teach kids how to grow vegetables and fruits. See, Nestle says, my experience is that transformation happens on the fringes and in the micro areas and the individuals. It doesn't happen on the large scale. It happens in our communities. When we come together to involve the larger community is when we belong. Gateway, we don't have to look far either to see belonging and believing. Just last week, as Alex mentioned, we participated in OMC. It was a good time, wasn't it? I can only say that because I wasn't here, but from what I hear, it's good, right? (laughs) I take your word for it. But to be honest, I mean, leading up to the OMC, I'm sure we saw videos. You heard people talk about it. But I myself was probably a little bit skeptical how this would all work. And yet when you all came out, you trusted God. You trusted that God brought Aaron to, to lead this event. Before you knew it, you started participating. And after you participated, you started to belong to this vision, and now, with JSC, Jungle Safari Club's a week away, I would say that we both belong and believe. Our youth, right? Yeah, youth, come on. Woo-hoo, give me a woot-woot, right? Our youth, give me, give me like a Kobe Fist or something, you know? Give me something. The youth, starting tomorrow, going on a mission trip to Philadelphia, where they'll participate in Mission Fuge, where they'll uh, join up with other churches all across the eastern seaboard, and serving the local community in Philadelphia. Now, they'll get to choose tracks like social ministry, maybe children's ministry, but it doesn't matter. Whatever they do, they're going to experience firsthand what it feels like, what it's like to participate and be on the front lines of God's mission. You see, by the end of the week, I mean, they already belong to the gateway community, but they'll have a firmer grasp of what it means to belong to the kingdom community. So that's something our youth are going to engage in. Amen to that. So how can we be doers of faith that invites and involves people to join in the kingdom work while sharing the gospel to them in ways that will enable and encourage them to do the same? Seems simple. Yet if we read on in James, James will tell us that there are some things that will hold us back from that. You see, James tells us what to do, but he's pretty straightforward. He's also going to tell us why we may not even be able to do that. And so if we look forward, let's look now to what will keep us from doing being doers of God's word in Northern Virginia. James gives it to a plain and simple. I think there are a few things that withhold us from being kingdom doers in Northern Virginia. First of all, I think we're too distracted. We live in an area, a time in history, where we can do what we want, when we want. Another thing is we're too busy. We find ourselves doing and being busy, but how often do we find ourselves really working and advancing? You know, the, the appeal for me and doing college ministry for the past few years as well, is to help college students understand that it's not a bad thing to be busy. As we know, college students are able to get out and to explore and experience life, and before you know it, it doesn't take long for their plates to fill up with activities. And so when I talk to college students and understand and want, want them to help for them to shape what it is God has for them, I don't discourage them from taking things off their plate, Right? This is the time of their lives where they should experience. My point is it doesn't matter what you put on the plate if you don't have the top priority of that plate, if you don't have the right plate in your hand. If you think your plate is you and you're doing everything, then you'll find yourself on a short leash. You may not find what you're doing to be as long-lasting as, say, if your plate was God's word. And if you understood what God's word guides you to do, directs you to do. And then sometimes I think we're also too selfish. Sometimes I think we're too good for our our own good, too educated. We find that we can sabotage ourselves because we think we know better than what the word says. And so what happens, you look at the second part of verse 23 and 24, it says this, it says, and after looking at himself, one can go away and immediately forget what he looks like. Right? If anybody does not do what the word says, it's like someone who looks at a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and doesn't even recognize who he is. See, we lose our identities if we come away from God, away from God's word. If we look at ourselves in the mirror, in that mirror being God's soul, what do you see? Well, for me, if I do say so myself, <laughs> it's looking pretty good on this end, right? And I'm sure what you see too is undeniably just phenomenal, (laughs) right? When I look in the mirror, though, I see past that. I see a bunch of insecurities. I see a bunch of prideful emotion, and I just see brokenness. Away from God's word, I feel emptiness. See, I'm a guy that I know some of my own faults, and some of my faults include just being too much at any one time. Sometimes I get myself into trouble is people would tell me to back off, to not be so intense. And that's a bad thing if you're away from God. But boy, when you're doing God's word, being intense is a good thing. So I constantly have to remind myself, look in the mirror. Why am I here? What do I do what I do for? What do you look at when you look in the mirror? Are you anxious not to mess up instead of being eager to serve? Are you selfishly coveting instead of compassionately giving. Do you seek vengeance, or do you offer forgiveness? What do you look at when you look in the mirror? Are you bitter for what you don't have, or gracious, grateful for what God has blessed you with? Do you stir with anger, or do you accept his grace? What do you see when you look in the mirror? If God's word is our mirror, to our souls, it doesn't take long for us to see the sin in our lives. You know, the Greek word for sin is hamartia. And the exact definition of sin is just missing the mark. I know oftentimes we think of sin being this big, blunderous, catastrophic thing. But oftentimes sin is well-intentioned, goodwill, good stuff sometimes. And yet because it's not rooted in God's word, can just miss the mark. And it doesn't matter if you miss it by this much or you miss it by this much. You miss God. You miss everything. And so then what does James tell us to do? Let's look at verse 25 here. It says what? It says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it will be blessed in what they do. Now, another thing about the Greek, if you look at the, what we just read about looking in the mirror in the Greek, that look that's used It's more of like a look and observe, kind of like look, you know, kind of check yourself in the mirror, that kind of look. The look that's mentioned in 25 that says look intently, this is the look that's also used when the disciples went to Jesus' tomb to look for him. It's that kind of look, right? So when it says look intently, it's more of like a look, like an examine, right? Look intently. You know, can you you imagine the disciples going up to the tomb, right? And it's like, you're ready to go in the tomb. You're like, it's empty, you know, and wait, what? You check again, you know, you may go in and like feel around, right? Really examine. So when James is telling us to look intently, he's saying look intently into the perfect law, right? And so what is he saying to me? Well, he says this, is that the Bible, God's word, shouldn't be read like a textbook. Because if we know anything about the word, the word is a living word. You know, as a matter of fact, Jesus is the word. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. If we are to be doers of the Word, then we are to be like Christ. You see, the Bible tells us to do this, do this, do all these things. And then God, of course, sent a second wave of doers in the form of Jesus. So everything that the Bible says in terms of do, 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 Jesus said, done, done. Jesus, thank you for saving us from the storm. Done. Thank you, Jesus, for water into wine. Done. Thank you, Jesus, for getting me through the death in the family. Done. Thank you, Jesus, for that time. I was brokenhearted and I thought that I lost my opportunity for love. Done. If you look to Jesus, he'll show you how to get it done. And so what does the law do? The law provides us with perfection. If we look into the law, we find that in choosing the word, there's freedom in surrendering. Now, when I first heard that, I thought that was kind of an oxymoron, freedom in surrendering, right? Because how can I be free when I submit and surrender? Certainly, current culture, our current world doesn't live by that creed. If you submit to the world, you're enslaved. Why is that? The world works on a different scale. It works on a limited time scale. See, living in this world means you have to be selective with your time. You only got so much of it. But when you choose to surrender to God's word and live for the kingdom, it means being elective with your time because you know that you've got eternity with God. Look at the word for what it is, perfect as in Christ. So if we look at the word, We find that we're to be doers of God. How does this show up for us? Look further in the passage. It shows up in a couple of ways. First of all, it shows up in our everyday relationships, regular practices that help us shape us in our actions. Let's go back to that beginning of the passage in 19, 20 and 21, where it says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So James brings up three calls for action. First of all, he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, right? And then slow to become angry. The first two sound pretty obvious, right? Be quick to listen. Listen to what? Listen to his word. Slow to speak. Slow to speak against what? Against what the world may want you to do. Slow to speak to maybe what God is offering to you. But why do you think James would bring up this, even mention anger? The first two seem pretty obvious, but why would he even mention anger? Well, it's pretty straightforward. There's no wiggle room. It's important to notice that, first of all, that none of these can be done by themselves, right? I mean, to listen and slow to speak, you can't do this by yourself. It takes somebody else to to do this, or you need to be engaged with somebody else, right? You can't do these things by yourself. So it needs to take a community. it It needs to take a relationship. Well, if we're going to do it right, the first relationship that should take precedence is a relationship with God. If you're quick to listen to what God says, slow to speak to him. And of course, if you don't have any anger in you, then you'll be able to accept what he has to offer. Because see, anger does not bring about the righteous life of God or what God offers through righteousness. Anger prevents us from seeing, uh, preaching, conveying grace. Have you ever done something for someone and expected nothing in return? Do you remember the look on their face? When we do for the kingdom, we convey God's grace. You see, instead of bringing repentance, anger causes rebellion. Blinds us from seeking true, uh, truth, true pureness. You know, speaking of siblings, I have another sibling, my sister here. You know, she's beautiful too. And my sister and I, let me tell you something, we argue I mean, we could win some contests in arguing, okay? Because when we argue, of course, you know, we're siblings, and and we've grown up each other's best friends, and we know how to push each other's buttons, right? And when you know how to do that, boy, there's just those times where you just kind of save it in your pocket, and when you're ready to blow, you know, that's your trump card, you blow it down, boom. And there are times often when we communicate with each other where we build up anger and resentment And a lot of times when we argue, I'm telling you, it's like clockwork. Every few months when we argue, it's no holds barred. I mean, you know, I may rip my shirt like Superman, Hulk, and just go crazy, you know. And you know when it's bad when you look for my brother. Because when we argue, it's almost like he just steps away, you know, real slow. (laughs) Because we get like vicious, we get vile. You know, there's words and just stuff that's said that should not be said. And so you know it's bad when you find my brother because he's probably in a corner, you know, meditating in that happy place, you know, probably singing like the theme song to Pokemon or something, just trying to find a good place to go to because it's not pretty when we argue. But that's exactly what happens when we argue. You know, anger is the root of what, uh, what happens, the root of what produces some of these things. You know, when I'm angry, it leads to bitterness, frustration, jealousy, lust. I'm sure if you all look not too far, probably you could find yourselves doing those very same things. If anger does all these things, what should we do? Well, verse 21 tells us, right? It tells us that we must rid ourselves of moral filth, which James tells us is prevalent. If it's prevalent, it means it's all around us, right? If filth is all around us, just like anything else, you get used to it. It makes us numb, kind of to evil, right? If you're around evilness and filthiness all the time, you get used to it. So you've got to constantly do, in your faith walk, rid of that so that you can humbly receive God's word. Because a lot of times we just think, all right, I've got to do my part, and i just got to pray to God. He's going to take care of it. And yet James instructs us here that if you're going to do, do it all the way through. And that means ridding yourself. You're responsible for that. Rid yourself of the filth so that you can be clean and open, so that God can come into your life. So it shows up in everyday relationships. It also shows up in our everyday religion. Religion, of course, being how we act upon what's our belief system. What does it look like? What's our system of conveying our faith? That's religion. See, the outward expression of true Christianity is how we do religion and not just what we say. In community as gateway, in the community of God's kingdom, this is what it looks like. If religion is all about what we say, not what we do, James tells us right here in 26 that our religion is worthless. So how does it look like an everyday religion for us? Well, verse 27 tells us. It's living out the Great Commission. The Great Commission tells us, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of age. Imperative word being making. Right? Therefore, go and make disciples. Disciples are not born, they're made. If you got to make something, you got to do it, right? So living out the Great Commission is a daily going out and making disciples. It's going out and teaching. It's going out and serving. It's the enactment of what God tells us to do. So we religion not only involves restraint of the tongue, but it involves mobilizing the church, mobilizing action. Verse 27 speaks of widows and orphans. And it's not the first time or the only time that it's mentioned, it's mentioned several times in the Bible. Widows and orphans. Why mention widows and orphans? Well, think about what are widows and orphans? What do they represent? Who are they? They're the people that have lost loved ones, that have nobody, no family, no concept of family. And so if we're to be doers of Christ, if we're to embody the Christ-like qualities, then they're our family. They're the ones that we need to, to reach out to, to take in. Gateway, you're doing God's work as we speak. Some of our youth have found families in adoptive homes. We have reached out to West Virginia town that most say have been forgotten. We help globally. We help feed people all over the world through Stop Hunger now. So right here in Gateway, right here in the community, right here in our nation, right here globally, we take care of people. The building itself, we've got this building that's coming up in the next few years right across the street. We've said numerous times that the building is not for us here now. The building we're building is for the gateway of 10 years from now, 20 years, 30 years from now. You all are doing work that's going to extend far past what we see, what we hear. So when God's word informs us of our doing, then we know that our actions go from being charitable to the world to being missional to his kingdom. So where do we go from here? Well, here's a, I wouldn't say an assignment, but here's something to think about for the next week. Go out and tell somebody how you're living the life and being a doer of God's word. And if you're doing it, if you're doing God's word and you're sharing with that with somebody, they're going to ask you, geez, where do you get this from? And you can say, well, read James 1, 19 through 27. Or maybe in the midst of sharing with somebody, uh, how you're living the life, you may find out that maybe you're not living the life of doing God's word, in which case you should be going back to James 1, 19 through 27. Regardless of the fact, wherever you sit on either side of that, you should be using this passage as your resource for the next week. Do it. Try it. Record the story. Think about the story. I won't be here for the next week, so talk to Ed. I'm sure he'd love to to hear your story and hear about it ways that you're engaging. Are you living the life God has intended for you through the word? What does it look like when we can make room for others at the table, that grand feast, so that they can belong to the word of God and to his kingdom? In order for your faith to work, your faith must work. Be doers of the word, as the word of God cannot be fully grasped until it's put into practice. Let us pray. Dear God, as you breathe life into us, Provide us with opportunities to accept you and to accept Jesus as king and savior, as creator. That's not where it ends. As James has told us this morning, you tell us to be doers, to extend ourselves, to be the word as Jesus was the word himself. And so enable us, encourage us, and empower us to be the doers of your word and not just hearers. We ask this for all, in Christ's name, amen.